Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Roberto, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. Uh, my name is Dr. Roberto Olivardia. I'm a clinical psychologist and a lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, and I, in my private practice, I treat individuals of all ages um, on various things. I specialize in the treatment of eating disorders, particularly in boys and men, um, of obsessive compulsive disorder and ADHD, which we're talking about today. And I also come at this from a personal lens. I have ADHD. I have two teenagers, both of whom, whom have ADHD, so can certainly speak to it at that lived experience level as well. Can we talk about maybe some of your focus in ADHD and then hopefully at some point get to some positives? Because everything I've heard from everyone I've talked to has been listen off a whole lot of negatives. And I'm like, well, thank, uh, I'm glad I got it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, ADHD, I, I think of it as this sort of way that the brain is wired. And it's a way that the brain is wired that given a certain kind of context can be make things very difficult and really hard and given other contexts could be almost an asset um but i wouldn't say that in a way that it's um like some people you might hear about talking about adhd is their superpower and i would always qualify that by saying it can be your superpower if you have learned the skills of how to manage it how to work with it how to treat it because untreated, unmanaged, it can really get in the way of people's lives. I mean, it can really ruin people's lives um, in, in many ways. And so with ADHD, we're talking about a combination of different symptoms. So there's an attention regulation issue. An ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is a bit of a misnomer. It's not that we lack attention. We just have a dysregulated level of attention. If I'm not interested in something, I bore very easily. And I can, we can talk about why that is, what we know about the ADD brain. Um, it's really hard for me to have a consistent level of attention if not, I'm not inherently rewarded or motivated. If I'm interested in it and like talking to people, like right now I'm completely engaged and I can do this for 12 hours. I mean, I'm in a perfect career, Robbie, because I engage with people and I'm talking with people. And that is very, very stimulating for me. If I was in, and I'm, I would say I'm very good at what I do because I'm just locked into it. I could be in another, you could put me in another career and I could probably be dysfunctional because I, I could, I'd fall asleep if I was bored in, in the middle of it. So the attention can sort of be really like a good old fashioned light switch and instead of the dimmer switch that a lot of people without ADHD will say, well, sure, that class was boring and it was a little bit harder to pay attention, but they could regulate it better. You know, I remember in high school in a chemistry class, I was just so bored in that class and the teacher was very monotone in his speech. And I was just narcoleptic in that class. I could not keep my eyes open. I just literally drooling down my face in REM sleep. Um, and if I wasn't the class clown, which I couldn't be in that class because that teacher was really, he was very harsh. <laughs> you take the risk. You take the risk. Oh yeah. I'm like, I am out. The lights are out. And I remember in my slumber looking at other classmates of mine, I'm like, how do they find this class interesting? And I remember talking to a friend of mine, his name is Rob. And after class, I said, how do you find that interesting and he's like oh i don't i think he, it's so boring i said but i like you weren't sleeping i saw you paying attention and he said roberto not everyone falls asleep when they're bored and i was like really you know it's almost now mind you i didn't know i had adhd back then i mean what we knew in the 1980s versus now is totally different but that's the difference because adhd also gets mischaracterized so everybody has a little adhd well, not really. I mean, yeah, everybody has things that they get bored at, but that's not in and of itself the only thing about ADHD. It's how you can regulate that. Then you have, so you have attention dysregulation, you have impulsivity, and impulsivity is where people are basically acting without thinking through all of the consequences, without always being future-oriented. Um, so it's, you know, I have pizza in front. I'm a foodie. I love food. And if there's pizza in front of me and maybe 
eating five slices of pizza might not make me feel good afterwards if I'm like stuffed, but in that moment, it tastes good and I love it and it's in front of me. And so bam, it's gone. And then it's whereas someone else would have that pause button or they could connect with this future orientation of themselves saying, oh, I can imagine myself being like, oh my God, I'm so stuffed. I wish I hadn't eaten that, you know, pizza. Unless it's Domino's. Unless and it's that, Domino's. Yeah, I'm not a Domino's fan What either. did oregano on the crust is to die for, man? Oh, uh, see, I, I'm not, a, I don't know. I don't know if it's their sauce is way too spicy for me, Um, but virtually every other pizza. Um, I'm not a Domino's fan or a Pizza Hut fan, Um, but um. So they can have that sort of pause button, but we can be impulsive, whether it's, you know, with food, whether it's blurting something out, whether it's, um, you know, just behavior that even, and this is particularly hard because for people with ADHD, it's not that they don't know these things. Um, and it can actually, this is where it can impair and really affect people's self-esteem because let's say you eat the five slices of pizza and then you feel sick afterwards. And then you're like, of course I feel sick afterwards. If I had five slices of pizza, like, why did I do that? And then they start, people can beat up on themselves or other people could be judgmental and saying, well, why would you do that? Like, you know, that X, Y, and Z is going to happen. Um, but it's, you're assuming that somebody has that a future orientation and this proper pause button, even if they know I mean, there were lots of things I did as a kid that I knew were dangerous and I knew probably were not always going to turn out well, but the, the thrill of it in that moment just overcame me. It was almost like, I mean, I used to say <laughs> to my friends, well, it'll be whatever happens, it's going to be a story. Like that was like my rationale for sometimes doing pretty impulsive things. And I was like, the, the thrill almost overrode it, overrode any potential consequences. And then you have hyperactivity, which is, you know, that sort of, but we, we are very clear of what a hyperactive uh, bo little boy or girl might look like bouncing off the walls and not sitting in their seat, fidgeting, those sorts of things. But we're also conceptualizing that this could be a mental hyperactivity. Cause let's say if you have a kid that is more of an introvert is more socially anxious and isn't going to be the kid that wants to get out of their seat because they don't want to be yelled at by the teacher. But in their head, what looks like them just daydreaming, there could be a whole flurry of thoughts that are, you know, racing in their mind. There's almost like that kind of hyperactivity and inability to sort of ground oneself, which is, you know, we could talk about later what makes people with ADHD notoriously have sleep issues. Like, I, I don't know anyone with ADHD that doesn't have an issue with sleep. Yeah, um, I'm an insomniac. Yeah. And so, and then there's all of the executive functioning issues that come along with ADHD and executive functions are cognitive processes that we do to get things done. So organization, decision-making, time management, our working memory, our ability to regulate our emotions, all of these things are executive functioning. This is the core in some ways of what ADHD is. So you put all of that together and now you can see, okay, this isn't just about how someone performs at school or it really affects every domain in our lives, some more than others. And so it's essential that people who have ADHD get diagnosed, get an effective understanding of, of what that is. And to know that there's also a personality piece that can come out of that too. Like I, I like the brain that I have. Um, and it, you know, I often say that ADHD is responsible for um, all of the frustrations and not so great things and, you know, tough moments and dark moments in my life. And it's responsible for these wonderful, like awesome, you know, experiences that I've had in the way that I work and process things. And so it's just learning how to manage all of that. And having ADHD, it, it's more the rule rather than the exception that people with ADHD will have what we call a comorbidity. So some other condition like anxiety issues, a mood disorder, we are at much higher risk for any kind of addictive behavior, whether it's substance, food, gambling, porn, you name it. I mean, whatever we like, we run the risk of liking too much very quickly. 
And that's just important to know. That doesn't mean that we should feel stigmatized by that, but it means we just have to be, you know, like I've told my kids, like, you're going to see lots of people who experiment with things around you. And some of them may never develop like a real problem with it. But we know having ADHD, if our brain's like, oh, I like this, it's very easy to develop a problem with it. Is that just because of the way it makes us feel? Yeah, because what what I find so validating actually is more and more research started coming out scientifically is understanding that we, when I say we're wired differently, we really are. Our brains are wired differently. So we have all these neurochemicals in our brain. One of them is dopamine. And dopamine is a neurochemical implicated in reward and in motivation. So if you have an adequate what we would just determine an adequate level of dopamine, it might not take much for you to feel stimulated or feel grounded, to feel present. Because we think of dopamine as like, it's excitatory and rewarding, but at the same time, if you think about when we feel rewarded, we also feel present. We feel in the moment. We're kind of like, I think of like anchored in, in that moment. So when we have adequate levels of dopamine, we feel present, we feel um, alive and stimulated. What we know about an ADHD brain is that there is a deficit in dopamine. So we are in like a, a reward deficiency all the time. So I think of ADHD as I am oriented to the world by what is going to stimulate me. Because by, by baseline, we have a bored brain. We just have a, a chronically bored brain. So we are seeking in our environment what is going to stimulate me? Now, keeping in mind that everything that's pleasurable is stimulating. So it's like, ooh, what are the things that I'm going to like? Um, but also it's important to know that not everything that's stimulating is pleasurable. Anxiety is very stimulating. Danger is stimulating. Chaos, stress, um, argument, you know, arguing with people, all of these things are very stimulating things but they're not always pleasurable, but an ADHD brain would rather lean into those, even those unhealthy forms of stimulation than to feel bored. And when we actually see that in the data in neurological research, to me, it's just very validating because it's like, oh, okay. So it's not that we're all the same and it's just easy for one person to just be stimulated by something and not be bored. And I'm just lacking willpower or I have a weak brain. It's just our brains are just designed differently. But when I am stimulated into something, I can, and we call it the hyper-focus mode, that I could really get in there. I mean, ADHD people often get mischaracterized as being lazy. And the truth is, is if we're not stimulated, it is really hard, really, really hard to be motivated. But when we're stimulated, we can be the hardest workers. We can be the last one to leave the office because like, I love what I do. And so I work a lot, um, but I'm not, you know, my schedule on Tuesdays, for example, and Thursdays, I see patients from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., sometimes straight. And peers of mine think that's a little nuts <laughs> that they're like, that's a lot of people to be meeting with. Maybe at six or seven, they're capped. Their energy is depleted. I get energy from this. I enjoy working with people of all different kinds of, I, I specialize in different diagnostic categories because it's just enriching to me. So my 8 p.m. appointment, I'm not any more tired than I am for my noon appointment. I don't leave the office thinking, oh my God, that was such a long day. I, I'm just rewarded by it. But I have had little odd jobs, you know, in summers and when I was in college and stuff that an hour of the work would be, would deplete me. High school depleted me. I mean, for 45 minutes sitting in some of those classes depleted me much more than a 12 hour work day. Do you seek reward from the conversation? I mean, I've done a lot of conversations. Um, but usually someone can tell if something's wrong when they go something wrong, you're not talking. And I'm like, no, I just, I'm, I'm out. I don't have any conversation in me right now. I work a four 30 AM job. So I usually right there first thing in the morning. Um, but I work out at midnight, like to do this, to do a podcast, even be able to function and talk to someone. I usually have to work out for at least three hours or I do cardio for six hours, but I daydream while I do it. So it just goes right out the window. 
But some people think that's insane, but I've done this every day for 10 years. I've never missed a day. And it's just something a part of me now. It's not necessarily a fixation of it. I At least I've gotten better with it. Because before, if I ate a French fry, I would have to burn 2,000 calories just to make up for that French fry. Gotten better, but it's just my energy aspect of things. Like today, if it's my day off and I want to record, I want to talk to someone, I want to be able to focus and not be jumping around everywhere, I got to burn off that energy. Now, sleeping, it helps if I can do six hours of cardio and then sleep. My sleep is just not there. But what I do get a reward from, what charges up my batteries, is having conversations. Just being able to talk like to you or anybody and people notice that about me. And I'm wondering if you get reward from the conversation. I have to think with a job that like for my job, I work at a gym. So I'm comfortable in the gym environment. It's home to me. But also every day is different being like one person there. Nobody else around you to bother you or pressure you or do anything of that type of stuff. But it's constant influx of people coming in, different types of people, new personalities, friends, family, whoever that I can associate, make jokes with. And it's always a different story. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's bad. But it keeps me engaged um, more to where I'm not sitting in my car, shaking my steering wheel, going, damn it, like I got to go into work. There's none of that anymore. And I would find that in other settings that it was the same repetitive, repetitive thing, even if it was constantly moving around, which I don't mind doing. Um but it's just the repetitiveness. It's like going to school every day is like sitting in a class, sitting in a class, sitting in a class. When I got to college and I had my car keys in my pocket, I could just be in the middle of class. But like, I can just go. And, in, and that freedom to me was more than what I needed to actually focus and pay attention. Absolutely. So you when you say you do six hours of cardio a day. No, no, no. no. Well, I mean, on specific days, if I it's a work day, I'm not doing it because I, I would smell like crap sitting at the front desk. Um, Every day would be around two to three hours of weightlifting but then on saturday sunday fridays and mondays typically i don't really book any podcasts or don't do anything um until later in the day because i like to do six hours on the elliptical like today i just daydreamed about oh i watched guardians of the galaxy 3 so i couldn't stop daydreaming about guardians of the galaxy 3 and i listened to the same song in the meantime i think it is it's a four-minute song or five-minute song, but I listened to it for the whole six hours. Wow, that's a long – that's such a long See, time. I say that and people go, that's impossible. Ask my friends. Ask the trainers at the gym. They all know it and they all think it's insane. Oh, oh no, no. Me. I believe that you do it. I just think, wow, that's so that's – My such, calves I mean, and, look great. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess I also come from – I mean, like I mentioned at the beginning, I also work with a lot of boys. And one of my other areas of expertise is working with boys and men with body image issues, exercise addiction, eating disorders. And I'm not saying that you have an exercise addiction, but who have done that. And sometimes, you know, they're motivated by, you know, fear of gaining weight and and this obsessionality. Well, I have a body you know. dis I have a body disorder. I think it's pretty common with if you look into a lot of gym people, at least people that work in the fitness life. Um, I used to be a big kid and then I lost a bunch of weight and then I got bullied really bad for it as well too. On top of being like the annoying aspect of ADHD that people just couldn't understand. Um, yeah. So I, I, but I've gotten way, 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 way better with, if you would have caught me like three, four years ago, I'd be doing three, three day workouts or something like that. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, with that, it's obviously, you know, ha but even with that, some would argue that could also be a function of ADHD is you know, are in, in regulation. And now on, if it's not um, impacting, if it's not impairing your health, then, you know, who's to say, I guess it's when, how much of that uh, takes up space and whatever other things that might be important priorities, you know, for you. Um, if I get an interest in a Bob Ross painting, I'll be watching Bob Ross on one of those days. I'll immediately be like, I don't have any interest to do this cardio anymore, and I'll have to go home and then try and paint this Bob Ross painting that I saw, which is good for the mental as much as like the cardio is for the physical stuff. But I don't know. I mean, I it's, they say you're zero to 100. That's usually how I get described. Like you're either this way or you're that way. And it's like there's no in between. I'm like, yeah, I don't have that middle ground. I try, but it's just not there. Well, that that's not uncommon, actually, for people with ADHD is because re regulation is a word that is I'll often probably even in this conversation use because people with ADHD, we do have a hard time regulating. Um, it's again, like the classic light switch as opposed to a dimmer switch. So if we like something and we, I mean, your brain clearly must be rewarded by cardio um, if you're doing it, you know, that, that long that um, and versus if it's something that you're not interested in, it could be just 
a total uphill, you know, battle, you know, the whole time to do. And, and how do we sort of, um, you know, get somewhere, not, it wouldn't even necessarily be in the middle, I guess, but somewhere where by regulation that we're making sure that we're regulating all of our priorities and where is it healthy for us is um, like, you know, there are certain things obviously in terms of how I spent my time that operated in one way when I was younger that I just can't do now. I have two children now that, I mean, when you have kids, for example, there's just the way, I mean, the amount of downtime that I needed prior to having kids versus now is totally different. And I had to sort of regulate that and adjust it. And I mean, and it's still tough because sleep became the thing I just would forego. I mean, I just didn't appreciate sort of how important sleep was when I was younger that, and I could just pull an all nighter and no one would know the difference. Like I just, as long as I'm clicked into what I'm doing, I just get a natural energy, but that doesn't mean it wasn't unhealthy for me. I mean, sleep deprivation is a really unhealthy thing. Do you have anything that you used to do that you used to care about a lot and then now you don't really do it anymore? Like that's with me in video games. I used to be really very interested in video games and I can't even give it the time of day. I think now I just click Netflix. I don't even know why I'm still paying for Xbox Live. I think I've been paying it for like six years. I'm just too lazy to go take off the subscription. Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I mean, definitely. I mean, there are lots of things that um, if you find rewarding and sometimes if it just once it stops being rewarding, it's and especially if there's something else that's come down the pike, you know, something else that's like, oh, here's something that's, you know, even more rewarding. Um, I, I mean, I I certainly having grown up most, you know, all of my childhood and adolescence before the Internet. Um, I think, oh my, I think a lot, if I had grown up now, and I'm very well aware, you know, having two teenagers, um, it would have been a very different experience for me. I, it would not have been good for me having social media, the internet. Um, I credit, and, you know, I'm very grateful. Um, you know, when I was growing up, my parents, we had one television in our house. It was middle, I grew up in a middle-class family um, out of Boston. And they did not, I loved TV. I loved watching television. Um, and we had a black and white TV where they could have afforded a color TV and they just made it as unappealing as possible. And I wanted cable so bad when MTV came out, cause I'm a music fanatic. And I was like, please let us get cable. Nope. They, they knew who their son was. They knew I would be glued to that TV. And instead I was writing songs and I was, inventing board games and I was out with my friends I mean I was a very physically active kid because I mean similar to what you were saying I was running all the time we were playing just energy just burning off you know that energy um and I remember the day I went to college they got cable the day I went to college <laughs> you, you couldn't even wait like 24 hours I was so upset but now I look back, I'm like, of course, that was the smartest thing to do because I would have been glued. And I mean, as it was, I could have watched enough TV just on the three channels. There were only three channels on if you didn't have cable at that time. And there was enough TV there I could watch. Um, but being a parent and knowing about ADHD and having kids with ADHD, I was very strict about that. Like my kids, I have a senior in high school and a sophomore in high school, and they recently got social media, recently got Instagram and TikTok. And I have very, very strict rules about what they post and all of that. And my goal was to try to get them both through high school without social media. And everyone's like, oh, good luck with that. But we went pretty far and we had a lot of discussions. And I said to them, it's not... Um, it's that I know what this would have done for me. And I would have, it would, it's just so easy to just go on your phone, just doom to do, 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 do. And that's true for everybody, but especially for people with ADHD. And I wanted, I mean, they're both athletes. They do. My son played football and he's a power lifter. My daughter's softball and basketball, and they have other things. And that's what I want. I think it's just too easy um, especially for kids with ADHD to have that kind of accessibility in an environment. Now it makes it really hard. Um, I, I do the, I do the post and ghost method, which is, I just post once a day. It's not good if you're trying to produce and run a show and trying to get it to spread the word out there. But I honestly made it to the point where 
I'm disgusted by it. You know what I mean? Like it, the way I kind of look at things is like if something, if I get fed up with something enough, I won't do it again. So with social media and posting, I go, I'm posting once a day. I'm not going to sit there and try and promote and do all that stuff. I don't have the time for it as it's a hassle. It's like people find it or they don't. And my, my friends are like, that's a terrible way to run a show. And I'm like, look at the message getting out there. I'm getting views on it. So I'm thinking, you know, at this point, like it's working for me, but I just know refreshing that follower count over and over again. That's not a healthy thing. That is a very, very dark road to go down. And I even see that with, um, I'm on like TikTok recently, but I mostly am on my own Instagram, my own personal one, just cause I have friends that I like to message and I like to talk to my friends and, you know, post up like a painting I do or something like that. But that's the, as far as I'll go, my other one, it, Facebook page is completely useless for my podcast. I just haven't been on it in forever. It's just, it's not worth the hassle. Like do you accept the bargaining of investing this time to get this out of it? What are you getting out of it? And to me, I have more input than I do output in my opinion. So I'm trying to match those. Yeah. I, I don't have any social media presence at all. Um, And part of it is I don't, I, I don't even want to dip my toes in it. Um, You know, I follow as just an observer Instagram pages of my favorite bands. Um, And that's really it. I don't have anything that I post. I don't, and maybe at some point when I come out with another book, I, I wrote a book pre-internet era about um, body image and boys and men. And and if that had come out now, I mean, sometimes you need social media to sort of, like you mentioned, like promote stuff and things like that. But um, yeah, I don't, I, I just, it's just, I don't want it to suck my energy um, in that way. But with ADHD, there's you know, there's the dopamine and then there's another neurochemical called GABA and the ADHD brain has sort of, you know, lower levels of GABA and GABA is implicated in inhibition. So when we have appropriate levels of GABA, we're appropriately inhibited from doing something that probably, you know, we shouldn't be doing. And that's, that's where the impulsivity piece, you know, comes in. So now in saying that, I want to be clear that it doesn't mean that People with ADHD are just screwed, you know, that, oh, this is how your brain is. You can't control yourself. It just means we have to work a little bit either more or we have to be more strategic as to how we do things in order to make things happen. And that's where the environment and supports and accountability and structure and all of those things are so important. Um, and then as far as like, you know, health related things to just be aware that we are at higher risk. I mean, people with ADHD, when it's unmanaged and untreated, um, there's a study that was done at the beginning, maybe three years ago, that showed up to a decade less of life expectancy because people with the unmanaged, untreated ADHD are at higher risk for obesity, for addiction, cigarette smoking, alcohol abuse, diabetes, I mean, you, you name it, um, all, and sleep apnea. I mean, all of these things that one of which and any one of those conditions can be impairing, but if you have three or four of them, that's a lot. That's a lot on the system. Can I ask a personal opinion on this one? Just because I've talked to a few people who study ADHD and research ADHD, do you feel like they some people might who might research it might not understand it because they don't experience it themselves? A couple of the conversation I've had, and one in particular. Um, it sounded like a, the way that they were talking about, it, I was like, this is not make this. I like, I, I felt like I needed a butt in just because it was not coming off. It sounded more like you're talking about an insane person compared to just talking about someone who has a, a deficiency of a certain amount of a certain, like maybe what it is. And then they were kind of really kind of hitting it hard. Like, yeah, you should be medicated on these types of things. And I'm like, look, I believe if someone wants to take that route, they can. But then even some things he goes, they would use an example and it would mention something that would like feel like, is this person like talking about what I, me in this? Like, is that what, you know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like saying it's you, but not saying it's you. And they just use an example like, yeah, it can be a bit annoying if someone, you know, intrudes or they don't have scientific knowledge on something like that. And I'm like, hold on a second. I just asked a reasonable question, but maybe I'm taking that more to heart and that might be a possibility. But I was looking at that and I go, I don't necessarily think some of these people I've spoken to, even though they're, they can be renowned psychologists for sure, but they don't have ADHD. So it's like, I don't know, like, I mean, how do you, I can only tell you from my perspective and my experience of what I experienced. And then they just kind of look at the data and what they can tell. And then 
medication is always the first thing. And I get there's a stigma behind it. I'm not saying that there isn't, but I'm just interested in like, if someone wants to try an alternative route, I mean, for me, I want to try and cope with the skills that I have or the things that I was born with so I can try and utilize it to be a good person. But I don't know, your your perspective seems different than what they've had on it. So I'm, I'm just interested in what your perspective is on the people who research ADHD. I mean, do you think that it might be more beneficial to have more people who have ADHD research into the subject? Because it is fascinating. Yeah, it's a, it's actually, it's a really great question. I mean, I definitely feel as, I, I mean, there are things that I treat that I personally do, am not affected by, um, that I feel I can definitely help my patients and, and am very educated on the topic. Like I, I don't have bipolar disorder, but I treat patients who have bipolar disorder and I have a lot of experience in it and a lot of education in it. Um, but there is something of people who, you know, when you're, and not all therapists are open about, you know, the different therapists may have different styles in terms of how uh, much they personally disclose things. I am of a very more relational style that I have found it to be a very helpful thing to share my story and, and more for for the patient, you know, to help them see, I can understand this because we know with ADHD, it's people have a history of often feeling judged or minimized or invalidated, feeling stupid, crazy, lazy. I mean, you name it. Um, and, you know, and I, I mean, I'm not wearing a tie right now, but I used to say like, don't let the tie fool you. Like I was not a goody two shoes when I was a kid. <laughs> I was not a Boy Scout, um, and and yet I turned out, you know, reason. <laughs> I would say reasonably okay. I turned out okay, um, but it's not that it didn't have um, its challenges. So I do think there's there's a power in a lived experience and storytelling, and that was just just in the family I grew up in and culturally you know, telling stories as a way of relating and getting to the to the essence of something. And that's not to say that somebody who doesn't have ADHD can't effectively treat it, can't work great with a patient with ADHD if they are open-minded and if they're, you know, willing to get, you know, the the research and, and the experience. Um, but I I know with a lot of my patients, the feedback that they give me is they really appreciate the fact that I'm open about my experience that even beyond the symptoms that are talked about in the DSM or whatnot, that I really, I get the essence of it, this sort of everyday experience of it. So it's just this additional dimension. And in no way, again, I know lots of clinicians that specialize in ADHD who do not have ADHD and are wonderful. And I know a lot of um, people who don't have ADHD who treat it, who really, I feel, do miss the boat and miss the mark as to what it is um, and, and beyond, again, the DSM. Um, you know, with medication, I mean, well, and then your question specifically about research. Now, researchers who don't, who are not clinicians, they're looking at data, you know, in a, in a sort of a whole group kind of fashion. And so it's not as much of a one-on-one -on -one. So they might present data in a way that could sometimes come across maybe less personal and can almost come across as some sometimes harshly if they're like, well, you know, having ADHD, you're more likely to end up in jail and, you know, have a criminal history and those kinds of things. Well, perhaps, I mean, but, but that's if you're looking at a whole group, but anytime I present that data, I always say to parents, most people with ADHD don't end up in jail. Most people with ADHD. But if you went into a prison population and you assess them, you would find a high rate of ADHD amongst prisoners. But it doesn't work the other way around. you know. So most people who have problems with addiction, you'll find a super high prevalence of ADHD. But the majority of people with ADHD don't have a drug addiction, let's say. Um, so, but... I would say a lot of people with ADHD have an intensity about them towards the things that they really like that could lead to that um, if given other circumstances and other variables. So researchers, I think, sometimes are more just about the data and, and we need that. We need the research. We need, I mean, we wouldn't be or have any of, we wouldn't be having this conversation if we didn't have that 
framework of research to really inform what we're talking about. And we have to understand the sort of human feel and, and how it really is going to be different for different people. And medication is one of those issues that no question that medication can be dramatically helpful for people with some people with ADHD, a hundred percent. I mean, I've seen night and day game changers. And we also know that some studies show that up to 25% of people with ADHD don't really respond um, well to medications. And part of that is because the majority of people with ADHD have a comorbid condition. So we're not like you can have, let's say if someone takes Ritalin or takes a stimulant, maybe that's helping the ADHD, but if they also have anxiety, it could make the anxiety worse. Other times it could make the anxiety better indirectly. It all, it all depends on the person. Like I treat many people, let's say with ADHD and OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and some of them, they cannot take an ADHD stimulant because they'll say, I am focused more on school and work and I'm focused more on my intrusive thoughts, my obsessive thoughts that I don't want to be focused on, but I can't not focus on it because it's almost like the medication is quote unquote working. It's enabling me to focus better on my thoughts, but it's not enabling me to discriminate between the thoughts that I really don't want to be thinking about and the ones that I do. Now I have, I would say just as many patients with ADHD and OCD who, when they take a stimulant, they'll say, wow, this is actually indirectly helping my OCD because I'm better able to focus on what I want to focus on. And they are better at discriminating out and, and sort of siphoning out those OCD thoughts. So it's it always comes down to the individual and we all are unique people. I mean, I could tell you, I'm not on medication. I'm not against medication whatsoever. I'm at a point, I'm 50 years old and I have spent most of my life without an ADHD diagnosis. I've had ADHD since birth as everyone with ADHD does, but, and I just, I have found ways of compensating for it. I'm like, at this point in my life, I can tell you, I know pretty much exactly what I need to do to execute things. What I can tell you is that if I were growing up today, there's no question medication would have been helpful for me during high school. I don't think in co in college, I because I knew I was, I went into college knowing I was going to be a clinical psych major. I wouldn't have, frankly, I wouldn't have gone to college if I didn't already know that. And I'm not saying that should be the case for everyone with ADHD. But for me, I, you know, horrified my parents my junior year of high school because I was like, I hate school. And you guys have said, you know, I have Im immigrant parents who have worked so hard to save money for college. I'm like, I'm just going to get into a lot of trouble and spend your money doing it. I'm gonna, I'm so unguided. Like, I'm not, why would I go to college? I, I hate, I really did not like school. So why would I sign up to do four more years of it? This is just not going to be a good thing. So I'll just play drums in a punk band. <laughs> and that's what Sounds and good to me. It sounds, yeah, still sounds good to me. Who knows? You know, I'm not dead. I have another 50 years in me. Um, so, I mean, my parents were one, they were, they, they both passed. They're wonderful. They were wonderful people. And they did the right thing because I was a bit of a rebellious kind of kid. If they're like, oh no, you're not like, they didn't say that. My dad just said, you know, how will you support yourself doing that? You know, do you think that that will give you everything that you want? And and then to their delight and to mine, my senior year of high school, I took a psychology class. And when I tell you that switch, it just was like, bam, only class in high school that I did 100% of the homework in that I liked. I couldn't wait to go to class. I remember waking up in the morning for school and just knowing that I had that class that day was just got me out of bed. Because I'm like, wow, this is something I have to pay attention to. I've never had this happen to me. And then I went from that to, oh, I'm going to go to college and study this. And then two weeks, two weeks into my first semester of college, I remember reading all the different degrees. And I was like, you know what? I might as well get a PhD and just declared that. And of me and, you know, I have two older siblings. I would have been the least likely to have gotten it. I mean, if you had said to my 10th grade, 11th grade self, oh, you're going to not only go to college for four years, but then elect to go five more years after that and get a PhD, it would have been like, you're out of your mind. Like, who's going to do that? But 
no one told me, oh, but this is what you're going to love. It's like eating your favorite food all the time. That's a totally different thing. But high school, I would have, I could have absolutely used medication would have been very helpful because I, I just, my sleep was so bad. I could not regulate my attention. Um, it would have been a different experience, but at this point in my life, I, I, it's not necessary for me. I guess one of the life things I've kind of learned, and I think it's from doing the show is I see, I would have been more self like focused on like, what do I care about? What am I going to learn? What's going to help me then through doing the show? I'm trying to think of like, what, like, instead of trying to, I wouldn't say take out the stigma of like medication out of this, I go, what's easier. It's like trying to find ways that it will work for every single person, the way that their mind, cause trying to change people's perspectives is one of the hardest thing in the world to do from their opinions or their thoughts or whatever they've developed. So I go, let's work with everybody's perspective and opinion and thoughts. So that means if people that don't want to choose medication, as soon as you mention the word medication, people tune out. So I'm like, well, how do we go and try and help them out and try and get them there, whether it's slowly educating them on it or whether it's just finding another method and we can try those as well too. That's what I try to attack from. And then this, I usually clinicians or people I've talked to so far about ADHD have kind of looked at it like I'm attacking the stigma or not a stigma problem. I'm attacking the medication as the issue. I'm like, well, uh, that's not it. But I guess that's the context that my context sometimes gets tossed out the door. Like people have to stop me go, did you mean this? But Hey, if you have ADHD, you're fun for linguistics. Those linguistics people, they love it because they're all like interested in how people talk and they just see how our brains run off on a bunch of different things. And they're like, this is fascinating. I could just sit and watch you. <laughs> it's like I keep going because I always end up going back to the beginning of a question I had that I forgot like 25 minutes ago. But back to the medic, the medication thing, the serious aspect of that is like, I think when you're trying to talk about a stigma, I think the main stigma that needs to be focused on is that ADHD is a real thing. And then how do we talk about it so much to where we can educate it and get society to kind of evolve around it, much like we've evolved around other things. Um, everyone's become normalized to gay, any of these types of things. That's really, really good. We can do that with other things as well, too. I mean, I learned a lot about schizophrenia because my buddy's mom was a schizophrenic. So learning about that, I became more normalized to it rather than seeing a documentary that might paint them as hostile or paint them as like a serious situation. It is a serious thing, but also they're people. They have these things. We have ways that we can treat it. And that only comes from medication. I'm pretty sure we don't even have a medication that cures schizophrenia. It's just one that helps out with the symptoms. So there's a lot of things that like when you start explaining it, like how I just did, people go, okay, that medication is needed for that. I'm like, all right, yeah, we could talk about other things too, but same boat as you. I'm 25. I never had medication. So I learned how to develop my skills and be able to work with them. And at times it can be a little bit rough, but also if I want to take medication, I could, but they're not that bad to where I need to go take them. So I think I'm doing pretty good. I don't know. Well, I think that's what, I mean, and I, I don't prescribe medications. I'm a psychologist, but obviously I collaborate with psychiatrists and nurse practitioners who prescribe, but my conversations really are around yeah, what are you looking to do? You know, what is it that you want, you know, in your life? What's getting in the way? And for some people who, you know, my leaning would be, I think medication could be helpful. Because one of the things I also, that's important is with stimulant medication, which is the majority of prescriptions for ADHD are stimulants. Um, Non-stimulants like Stratera can be also be prescribed. But with stimulant medication, you, it's very trial friendly meaning you can take it and the day you take it at most two days, you know exactly what it's going to do. It's not like antidepressants, which are very helpful medications for a lot of people, but you might need that two to three weeks in your system before you can see what uh, what effect it has. With, it, with stimulants, you know pretty much the day or two. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, you, you know, with of course, supervision from your prescriber, you go off it, it has a very short half-life and you can even try a different medication a couple of days later. Like it's, it's not something that requires the kind of um, very careful um, sort of everyday consistency, at least in the trial period as some other medications do. So for some people, I'm like, if you're on the fence and you think this is something that could help you, but ultimately it's up, it's for you to let me know what's worth it for you because 
you know, like, for example, like most people cannot do six hours of cardio a day. Like most people would never have the energy to even do that. So if, if that's helpful to you, if that exercise is grounding you, if it's burning off energy, if it's doing that, and it's, as long as it's not harming you in any way and mentally you feel good about it, you have a good relationship with your body and with all, then who, who am I to say? Um, but most people would not be able to do that because of just the way their jobs are constructed or family obligations or the amount of sleep that they need. So then it's like, okay, well, and if you don't have some other outlet or you don't have something else, that's where medication can be helpful. And so it's, you know, like we know, for example, studies will show that people who have ADHD who um who have an addiction and um when they are in sobriety the studies show that those who take medication are less likely to relapse um in their addiction so now i wouldn't obviously say well you have to take medication but i would say it would require you though if you didn't take medication it would require you to do probably a little bit more and you'd have to we'd have to monitor things more it's just it's just more energy and that could be worth it to someone and that's fine. But I also don't want people to feel to, to like almost be white knuckling something because of like you were saying the stigma that if they take medication, that they're taking the easy way out or that they're weak or that they're, that's not the case at all. I mean, that's, to me, it's no different than, you know, what is the threshold for someone to decide, you know what, I need glasses or contacts because Oh, things are getting a little bit blurry and, you know, I'm squinting too much. And now I'm getting a major headache because I'm squinting, you know, too much. Just get glasses or contacts. They're so much easier, you know, than having to squint, you know, through the day, because sometimes you can bring in and rally in all those resources and it could still be hard, um, you know, for people. But having said that, I work with lots of people who don't take medications, but they're really, they have something in place, you know, whether it's exercise or their music, you mentioned that you paint, you know, for people who are like creative, I mean, that can be a wonderful outlet. They are really, we have to be on top of making sure they're sleeping well and eating well and things like that to kind of, you know, ground them. Are they in the right career that produces a good sense of structure and accountability? Because, you know, if you're in a job, let's say where um, there's no, concrete deadlines that can be hard for people with ADHD like I I need a deadline if you need something due I mean oftentimes I get asked to write stuff and articles and I'm like when is the deadline and they're like oh get it done when you can I'm like oh no 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 you need to tell me a deadline I might get it done the night before but I'm going to get it done by the deadline versus whenever then it becomes whenever you know so it's it's knowing what we have to ask for as well to manage that ADHD. Speaking of deadlines, what about the perception of time? Um, I was getting scared for a little bit because I thought I had Alzheimer's. So I was looking it up. I was like, why am I missing chunks of time? Now I've had sleep scientists on the show before who have talked about like, maybe I'm hitting, cause I only sleep maybe two hours a night, three hours a night. And they're never really full concrete. They're kind of up, down, up, down, like every 10, 15, 30 minutes or so. Um, it's been like that since I was very little. Um, so I, to me, that's just normal and not everybody in my house thinks so. Um, but I had a sleep scientist on who was just telling me maybe I'm hitting an unnatural REM cycle, but then I mentioned I had ADHD and he was like, I mean, it could be possible, but you know, it's not maybe get something that might be with your ADHD, which was just burning off energy to really try and focus in on that. But my time perception is off. And I thought that was sleep related. I thought it was because I wasn't sleeping enough that my brain was just something was going off with, but I find that. I don't know if I'm micro napping, if I'm doing some type of thing, there's time that is missing. We're already in May and it does not, I don't know where the days are going. And it just feels like I'll text someone and I'll be like, yeah, I mean, are we hanging out this weekend? He's like, that was three weeks ago. You're we supposed to hang out. And I was like, no, no, nah, no, nah, come on. You're playing. And then I'll check and I'm like, oh God, it was real. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bail out. Yeah. So first I would say, and, and, you know, in some ways I feel like I'm, um, it's like talking to my younger self is I'm concerned that you're only getting two to three hours of sleep. And that is, that's, the, I feel fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's, that's not good for your brain. Um, and, and I'm speaking as someone who would 
when I was your age was the same way. I mean, could get three hours of sleep, four hours of sleep and be like, whatever, you know, I'm like, I'm still doing well. And, and, um, the more I learn about sleep, I'm actually like kind of freaked out that I probably shaved years off of my life with the amount of sleep deprivation, because even though I didn't feel well, subjectively, I didn't feel the sleep deprivation because I would put myself in situations that were highly stimulating that probably self-medicated that in, in ways. But if I was bored, you, I mean, bomb, like I'd be, you know, um, out to lunch. Um, frankly, I would recommend getting a sleep study. I, I got a sleep study and I, I mean, I had sleep apnea, which was one big thing. I had, I had a whole host of sleep disorders as a kid. I mean, I was a sleepwalker and sleep talker and I had sleep paralysis episodes up and through my early adulthood, but I also have something called the delayed sleep phase syndrome, which is highly associated with ADHD, where it was very difficult for my brain doesn't even go into deep waves of sleep until about like two in the morning. So prior to having kids, my ideal hours of sleep were between 2 a.m. and like 8 a.m. Like that was when my brain would just like, okay, now it's time to go to sleep. Like, so there is research and evidence that shows that people with ADHD are at higher risk for circadian rhythm abnormalities. Um, when we sleep, we there's technically five stages. It's stage one, two, three, four, and then REM sleep where we dream. So when we sleep, we go one, two, three, four, REM, four, three, two, one, two, three, four, REM, and we sort of cycle throughout the night. And studies show that people with ADHD, when we kind of loop back up to that stage two sleep, like most people actually wake up in the middle of the night, but just don't remember it because they just quickly go right back to sleep. Whereas people with ADHD, when even in that second, we are more likely to be like, I'm awake. Why am I awake? And like, we're just up. And now we're almost stimulated by the fact that we're not sleeping. And then it's just hard to get our bodies back like to, to sleep. But, you know, at 25, your body is still in develop, your brain is still developing. An ADHD brain doesn't stop developing to like 28, 29. So there's still, there's a lot of neuroplasticity. There's still time. There's still really. time. <laughs> exactly. Um, whereas a, a neurotypical, they call it, a non-ADHD brain is about 24, 25 that it's done. Um, so I feel like that's mother nature's kind way of saying, let's give, we need to give these people a little bit more time because they're going to really tax the system. And trust me, I tax the system in many ways. Um, so I can tell you from my personal experience, and we could do a whole other show about just sleep and, and all of this, um, what I was able to do at 25, when I even five years later, 30 would result in like me getting shingles or me getting mononucleosis or like my immune system would take hits from not sleeping as much. And I could, I, and I would say it's probably always going to be an issue for me sleep. Um, it's still hard for me to shut my mind off at the end of the night. I don't get as much sleep as my peers do. Um, I'm getting more sleep than I ever have in my life. Um, but it's something that, yeah, I, I would say is a very, very important thing, you know, to work on and it's highly implicated. And I know we're um, out of time, but just to answer your question about time, that is absolutely a very common phenomenon for folks with ADHD. And I would say you can have as much time as you want, by the way, I'm not, I'm free. For yeah. Unfortunately, I, yeah, I, I have you. to go. I have an appointment, but we, I'd be happy to set up another time where we yeah, can talk 100%. Um, that, um, you know, when they say time flies when you're having fun and that's true again, for lots of people, for people with ADHD, that is like, exponentially true in the same way that time is like molasses when we're not having fun. Um, I remember, I mean, school is a good example. I remember this summer job I had for two weeks doing inventory at this bookstore. It was the most mind numbing, boring thing. Oh my God. I literally felt like my soul was sucked out of me. I remember this, the beginning of the shift, we started at 9am and I'm counting binder clips and erasers and, oh my gosh, all this stuff. And I thought, and I remember time went on. I said, it's got to be lunchtime soon. Like I need a break. And I looked at the clock. It was 925. I thought it was 11 or 1130. I'm like, only 25 minutes have gone by. I honestly thought the clock had stopped. I literally thought the batteries had died. I'm like, that can't be the right time. And then 
to your point, sometimes like, you know, other things happen. I'm like, oh my gosh, that was four weeks ago. I felt like that happened yesterday. Like, and ADHD is honestly the only condition in which this is a phenomenon of like, of time perception is um, a, an issue, is a thing. I mean, even the way we internalize time, um, which is why a lot of us are prone to procrastination, is if something is due two weeks from now, you know, we joke in the ADD community that there are two time zones. There's the now and the not now. And so if it's in the not now zone, it's not being looked at. It's not happening. It almost doesn't exist in some ways. So it's like, here's the narrow now zone. And whereas someone, if, you know, I remember in fifth grade, we had a month to, we had to read a book and do some art project as a book report that represented that book. And the book that I chose was this book called The Mad Scientist Club. I didn't read it. Um, it was like three days before it was due. And I'm like, okay, let me skim this book and at least have some idea what it was about. I read the cover, um, the uh, back cover of it, the summary. I skimmed it. I'm like, okay, the morning of the day it was due, I took shoes out of my dad's shoebox, made this horrific diorama, which is such an 80s term. <laughs> and I made this awful diorama of these characters and I think the gist of the book was these kids who were like detectives and they thought this monster was living in a lake. And um, it'd be funny to Google the book to see, I can still remember the cover of it. And I'm like, this is so pathetic, but whatever, I'm getting it done. And I went into class and this girl in my class who clearly did not have ADHD, she read Little House on the Prairie and she made a Conestoga wagon made out of like pretzel sticks, like uh, long pretzel sticks that she glued on the cloth. It was beautiful. It was like a work of art. And I said to her, and this again, these are like these quotes that I look back at and die laughing, thinking, I said, oh my gosh, how did you do this in like a day? That still looks like it took a long time. And she looked at me like, what are you talking about? I've done, it took me three weeks to do this. I read the book in the first week and I did this the next three weeks. And I thought, what? Are you kidding me? First of all, you actually read the book. And number two, you had that. It's, it was almost like I, I couldn't, it was like a language that I didn't even understand that she had the, the planning, the skills to be able to put something to do this project over three weeks. I didn't even think about it until three days before it was due. And then it was, okay, what am I going to do and kind of, you know, put together um, so time, like that's a time perception issue. It's almost like a time blindness of sort of, even once you go too far out, it almost becomes like foggy for a lot of people with ADHD, but even the experience of time. And I've thought about writing papers about like the philosophy of time. I don't wear a watch. I find it even constraining, strangely enough, like sometimes even looking at it, I mean, I, I'm very punctual, you know, for the most part with things. So I know I have to operate in time, but there's a part of me that feels like this weird relationship with it. Uh, so, um, but unfortunately I know I, I have to end, but I'd be happy to, we should find another time to talk. We can go on. Well, Roberto, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links and I'll make sure I put them in the description as well. So I don't have any social media, but I would recommend organizations that I'm on the boards of that do wonderful work with ADHD. One is CHAD, C-H-A-D-D. Um, I believe it's CHAD.org. It stands for Children and Adults with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. I'm on their professional advisory board. They um, sponsor a conference every year. This year is in Baltimore, Maryland at the end of November. And I highly recommend if you have ADHD, if you're a parent of a kid with ADHD, if you're an educator who has students with ADHD, this is a conference where everybody is inclusive and invited and you I mean, to me, it's like my community. It's like my peeps, you know, it's three you, hours you, away from me. You should go. I mean, I'm in Maryland. So, oh my gosh, you should totally go. It's, it's so much fun because we're a fun group of people. And most of the people, honestly, even the professionals have ADHD themselves, but you'll find a sense of community of things that you thought were these weird esoteric things. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is actually normal within the world of ADHD. Another organization, the Attention Deficit Disorder Association, or ADA, 
And they are the first um, and the most prominent adult ADHD organization. There's another organization called understood.org. Uh, and they do wonderful work and particularly um, giving a lot of information to parents to help their children who have ADHD and learning differences. Um, and then attitude, which is A-D-D-I-T-U-D-E. So instead of like attitude, it's attitude, like A-D-D, attitudemag.com. They're a wonderful resource. I'm, I'm on uh, their scientific advisory board of articles, free webinars and podcasts to just get education and support and i'll link all those in the description like i said i appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show thanks everybody for listening to this episode of out of the blank podcast